Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. We love to talk. Research says that on average we spend about 20% of our life talking. And that's not including when we're talking to ourselves. Sometimes I'll be alone in a room with only our little white dog, Sophie, and uh, Cindy will hear me talking and she'll say, who are you talking to? And I'll lie and say, Sophie, when really I'm, I'm just talking. We, we talk to ourselves. Uh, we talk a lot. In fact, in one year, if you talk at an average rate, which research says is about 20,000 words per day for men, about 30,000 words per day for women, with gusts up to 50,000, <laughs> that if you talk at an average rate in one year, you would fill up 66 books of 800 pages each. We talk a lot. We use words a lot, and our words matter. What's more, they matter to God a lot. James in chapter 3 verses 1 through 12 will teach us today about the terrible tongue. We are in week 7 of our 16-week series in the, the book of James, and if you've been with us, you know, or if you're familiar with the New Testament letter of James, you know that it's a letter written by the brother of Jesus who before uh, Jesus was crucified, was not a believer, was not a follower of Christ, but after he had an encounter with the resurrected Christ, Jesus became more than his perfect older brother. He became his Savior and Lord. And James went on to become uh, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and a major leader in the early church of the first century. And so as persecution and hardship descended especially upon Jews who had become Christ followers by trusting in Jesus by faith. Uh, and many of them were scattered from their homes, from the city of Jerusalem and, and in that area all across the Roman Empire. He wrote to them because they did not yet have the New Testament as we have, and so he gave them what we said in week one, what amounts to a spiritual GPS pointing us towards spiritual maturity. It's a road map to maturing in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And 20 centuries later, the book of James is as relevant as ever because James dealt not only with problems and issues that Christ followers had in the first century, that though times have changed and, and our circumstance and environment has changed, people have not changed. And so in principle, we're still dealing with the same problems, the same issues. And so James began his letter talking to those persecuted Christ followers 
about not only their trials and their troubles, but more importantly, their attitude about them to help them understand that when they went through difficulties, to consider it joy because God wants to use that to grow us, and he still does. And then James talked to them about temptation, how it works and, and what we can do and should do to overcome temptation and stay faithful to the Lord Jesus. And then last week, uh, we looked at James' lesson uh, about comparing counterfeit faith with real faith, what real faith looks like and what counterfeit faith looks like. And then today's issue is one that all these years later, we are still facing this issue, and it is how we use the words that come from our mouths. So if you have your Bible, turn it to James chapter 3. The first 12 verses of the third chapter of James will be our main text today. And as always, I'll be teaching from the New Living Translation. James chapter 3, we begin with verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand James. He's not trying to discourage people from becoming teachers in the church or even uh, pastors if God were to call them uh, to do that. But he is just saying that if that is your calling, if that is your role in the body of Christ, you're going to be held to a higher standard. But the church needs teachers. Churches need pastors. But because their influence is multiplied, so is their responsibility. So is their accountability. Those who teach others the scripture and principles and issues of the Christian life are responsible and accountable first and foremost to God. Let me try, try to illustrate it. Let's just say that you were to slam the door of your car and your finger got caught in it and you said a curse word. Now, I know you never do that, but let, let's just go with me here. Let's just say you did that and you said a curse word. And when you said that curse word, the only person that heard it, if you're married, was your spouse, or if you're single, it was your best friend, just one other person. Well, it would be a bad thing. To, it would be a sin to curse and, and say a, a, a bad word, but uh, the impact would be limited to that one person. But let's just pretend this morning as I got up from my, my seat and I made my way to the platform and stepped on those steps and I already had my microphone on and I tripped and I said a curse word. And it went out because of my microphone, not only to everybody here on the lower floor and all you people up in the balcony and all you people who are watching online at home or wherever you are and people who are listening to the podcast. We would set a church record for the number of people who would listen to the podcast that week. Did you hear the pastor curse? And they, they dial it up. Maybe they don't even know how to get to it. But I mean, the, the impact, the influence would be larger just because I have the responsibility of being a teacher. And James is saying that if you're going to be a teacher in the church, you need to understand 
that with that comes even greater accountability. But let's be clear, it's not just preachers and teachers for whom this matters. Because people have influence in other realms of life, whether it's business or education or whatever your life calling might be, or even just in your neighborhood and certainly in your family. Here's what I think James is trying to say. The wider your circle of contact and influence, the greater the impact of your words for good or for bad. Uh, I want to let you in on a secret. Sometimes when you have preached hundreds of sermons like I have and most pastors have, at some point or points along the way, you're going to say stupid stuff. And and I'm just going to confess, there have been times I have said stupid stuff. I know because some of you have told me that I said stupid stuff. In fact, there are some in every church that think it's their calling, it's their spiritual gift to tell the pastor when they think he said stupid stuff. Thank you for that, by the way. But I'll let you in on another secret. I'm not the only one who says stupid stuff. So do you. We have all said stupid stuff stuff. It's a universal fault. It's a universal weakness. And James recognizes that. Look at verse 2. He says, indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. Uh, The word translated there, perfect, we've looked at it before in the Greek, is teleos. It's a common word in the New Testament. We run across it in our studies. Uh, It does not necessarily always mean perfect as in without any fault or blemish. It also means fully complete, fully mature, spiritually grounded and mature. And so what James is saying here, that if we could master our mouths, then that's a good indication that we probably have gained mastery over other areas of our Christian life. Our words matter. Uh, Jesus thought so too. I'm going to take you on a quick detour. We'll come back to to James chapter 3. But in Matthew's gospel, chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus is talking to some people who have become obsessed with the dietary laws of Judaism. They, They don't eat this and don't eat that, and they had just specific ways in which meals were to be prepared. And and they thought if they got all those things right, then they were in great shape with God. And, And Jesus is saying to them, you guys don't get it. You're missing it. And here's what he says, the punchline of his discourse with them. Matthew 15, verse 11. He said, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. The tongue is so small but so powerful. Back to James chapter 3, verse 3. He illustrates that for us. He said, we can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. 
and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. James' point is the tongue is small in size, but it is massive in its power. And just as a bit that's so small in the mouth of a horse can cause that powerful creature to go the direction the rider wants it to go. Just as in the first century, their ships were guided by by a rudder, and even a, a big cargo ship could be steered by changing the direction of that rudder. And so he applies then those word picture illustrations, verse five. He said, in the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. I want to stop right there in the middle of verse five. The tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. And when, when I read that this week, I thought of some of the grand speeches that I've been aware of. One of my historical heroes was Winston Churchill. And when, when England was being bombed into submission by the Germans, Winston Churchill said to the British people, never give up, never, 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 never give up. And those words gave such courage to the people of England that they persevered and they and the Allies eventually won the war. On our side of the pond, as the British say, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said to the American people, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And we remember other grand speeches. JFK said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Words can be powerful. And if you have a a, a printed Bible, it is likely in the New Testament the words of Jesus are what? They're read because they're powerful. They were the words of our Savior when he walked on this earth. Words are powerful for good. But then look at the rest of verse 5. He turns it over. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. You know, California is known for, among other things, its wildfires. Uh, There's been a series of wildfires for years in California, but I remember several years ago there was one uh, series of wildfires that reportedly was started by someone who was riding a motorcycle and they had modified the exhaust so that it didn't have the, the mechanism that catches the sparks that come from the engine, and that motorcycle spewed a spark out that set ablaze thousands of acres of California land. A tiny spark can set a great forest on fire, and so it is with the tongue. And James continues, and among all the parts of the body, The tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. 
James is a master of word pictures, and the, the word that's translated here, hell, is Gehenna. And for the Jewish Christ followers to whom he was writing, that would conjure up immediately an image because Gehenna was a location outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was the, the garbage dump for the entire city. It was a place that they would bring all the, the, the garbage and pile it up, and it had maggots and every kind of detestable thing in that, that giant place, and then they would set it on fire, and, and Gehenna would just be a place of a massive fire. And so that's the kind of image that James uses to them to say that's what the tongue can do. It can set your whole life on fire. When I thought about the power of words, I thought about one of my favorite all-time singers. Some of you are not old enough to know who these people are, but there was a group back in the 70s named the Carpenters. Uh, there were a brother and sister duo, Richard, who is still living, was and is a musical genius. And Karen had the most beautiful alto voice I've ever heard. Amy Grant's a close second. But, I mean, just the most beautiful voice. And I still, especially at Christmas time, love uh, to hear her sing. But in one of the early concerts in their musical career, a reviewer wrote a review. And in this review, he described Karen Carpenter as, quote, Richard's chubby sister. And those words so impacted her that she began to obsess about her weight. She, be, she began uh, to be so obsessive about staying slender that she developed a, an eating disorder that's common today but was pretty unknown then called bulimia. And for years, though her her career continued. She conti continued to deteriorate physically until at the age of 32, she died from heart failure caused by her bulimia that all started with the words of a reviewer in the newspaper that called her Richard's chubby sister. Our words have power. They have power. Our words can lift people up in encouragement or it can pull them down into the pit of despair. Our words can tell people how valuable they are to us and to God or it can tell someone that they're useless and worthless. Our words can affirm and compliment someone and build their confidence and self-esteem, or it can belittle and criticize and push them down. Here's what I'm trying to say. Your words have the power, the power to build up or tear down. You must choose which way you will use them. I love Ephesians 4.29 out of the New International Version. I love the way it's translated here. Look at it on the screen with me. The Apostle Paul said, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Did you catch that? 
wasn't a suggestion, it was a command. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. James illustrates what a difficult challenge and problem this is for us to deal with. And he'll say in these next verses that, that almost all creatures can be trained and, and, and be safe to be around, but some are full of deadly poison. Look at verses 7 and 8 of James 3. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Mm. When, when I read those verses, this is the image that came to mind. There have been times when Cindy and I were preparing to go on a cruise. We've done that a few times in our, our life, and... Uh, Though I've never done this, I always read through all of the excursions. You, you know what I'm talking about there? The trips that you can make from the ship. And, the, and in the, the warm weather climates, there's usually an excursion in which uh, family members, even children, can get in a pool with dolphins. And the dolphins will swim around and the children can pet them and it's just real sweet and cute and, and safe because the dolphins have been trained. But I, I had to think... What would it be like if the dolphins got out of that pool and they filled that pool with water moccasins? How different that would be and how different the impact of our words can be. So is James saying this is just hopeless? Like, okay, I, I can't help it, so I should do nothing? No, he's not. But he's saying this is such a difficult challenge, we cannot conquer it without God's help and without God's wisdom from the Scripture. Because the tongue has incredible potential for evil. The words of Christ's followers can do tremendous harm to others and to the work of the kingdom of God. And... and and James goes on, beginning in verse 9, to, to talk about how disjointed and incongruent those two polar opposites are. Verse 9, sometimes it, meaning the tongue, sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father. I'll have to admit that some of my favorite times in the worship service are when, and I love the, I love the band, I love the instrumentalists, uh, worship just fills my heart in both of our services, but I love the times when the instruments just drop out and it's nothing but the voices. And I not only hear the beautiful voices of the vocalists on stage, but I hear your Voices, And by the way, you have a nice voice. I was hearing you. Yes, ma'am. You were singing right behind me. I, I love to hear God's people sing. And whether you have a beautiful voice or not doesn't matter. It's the heart. But as much as I love it, God loves it even more. The voices of God's people singing praise unto him. 
But then he says those same tongues, sometimes it curses those who've been made in the image of God. Now certainly that speaks of profanity. That's, that's a curse. But there are other kinds of curses that our tongues can speak. We curse others when we lie or deceive them or mislead them intentionally with our words. We curse others when we gossip about a brother or sister in the body of Christ behind their back. Even though Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says very clearly, if you have a problem with a brother or sister, you go to that brother or sister. You don't talk about them behind their back. You talk to them. And you talk and pray together to see if you can resolve it. And there's a process in Scripture. We curse others when we seek to manipulate them with false flattery or some kind of insincere, hypocritical misrepresentation. We curse others when we slander them, when we deceive them, though we are followers of Jesus Christ. And so James goes on to say in verse 10, and so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. His teaching here is is so consistent with what he's been teaching us up to this point in the letter. Last week, he talked about how our profession and our behavior must match up. There must be a congruence between the two. We need to to walk the, the talk. And our big idea, if you remember last week, was this. The truth about what you believe is revealed by how you behave. You remember that by last week? The truth about what you believe is revealed by how you behave. But if I can shape that just a little bit for today's subject, here's what I would say. The truth about who you are is exposed by the words that you say. And so James continues, beginning in verse 11, to talk about the the mismatch, the incongruence uh, of the things that come out of the mouths of believers. He says, verse 11, does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. Once again, James is using illustrations, word pictures from nature. He says, from the same spring, you can't have two different kinds of water. Let let me contemporize that just a little bit. This morning when you got up and got ready for church and you turned on your faucet to brush your teeth, you expected, and there was, clear water, clean water to come out of that faucet for you to brush your teeth. Aren't we glad? But what if you had turned on that faucet and instead of clean, clear water, sewer water had poured out? Why, you would be calling your water provider at the first opportunity and you would be incensed 
that you can't have sewer water coming out of the same faucet that your clean water. Speaking of clean water, would you... Am I back? We need clean water. We cannot have polluted water coming out of the same spring. And so James says to them, brothers and sisters, this is not right. We have a choice. Here's what he's trying to say. Here's what I'm trying to convey. We have a choice in how we behave and what we say. I want to illustrate the passage to you from two verses in in Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 16, verses 23 and 24 says, From a wise mind comes wise speech. The words of the wise are persuasive. Kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. Isn't that a beautiful picture? But then 10 chapters later, the writer of Proverbs turns it around. Proverbs 26, verses 24 and 25. People may cover their hatred with pleasant words, but they're deceiving you. They pretend to be kind, but don't believe them. Their hearts are full of many evils. So what do we do with this? What what, what do we do with all this truth about our tongue that James has delivered to us today? I want to end the message uh, with a a couple more passages, but, but just three quick questions, and then I'm done. Here's the first question. Is there anyone you have criticized behind their backs and from whom you should seek forgiveness? Is there anyone in your life that you disregarded, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, that gives a clear path for dealing with disagreements, and instead of doing what the Word of God says to do, you have talked about them, you have gossiped about them, you have slandered them behind their back, and if you're going to do the thing a Christ follower ought to do, you need to communicate with them and seek forgiveness. You got anybody like that in your life? I don't know whether you do or not, but you do, and God does. Why do we think we have the right to pick apart somebody else's life? I want you to see the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. You you know these words. Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5, Jesus is speaking. If you are reading this in your Bible, it would be in red. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. I didn't say that. Jesus did. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. 
Jesus is saying we don't have the right to pick apart somebody else's life when there's more than enough in our own life we ought to be dealing with. But if we have, is there somebody from whom you need to seek forgiveness? And can, can I just let you in on a secret from a half century of pastoring? Gossip can destroy a church quicker than a fire in the building. Gossip is a destructive force in the body. And I'm not saying that because this is a church prone to gossip. I really don't think that we are. But every church has that going on somewhere. Gossip can destroy a church. I want to read to you quickly a quote from my favorite pastor teacher, Chuck Swindoll. Here's what Chuck said, quote, Our words can build unity or demolish it. The tongue can encourage fellowship or destroy it. Our mouths can form community or fracture it. The tongue is a small but powerful member of the body. Yes, it has the ability to do tremendous good, but it also has the potential to do incalculable harm. End quote. Here's another question. <clears throat> Do your words communicate optimism and hope or cynicism and gloom? Optimism and hope or cynicism and gloom? Let, let me let you in on another secret. Nobody needs to hear you tell them how bad things are in the world. I mean, we can all see it. Just look at the news. It's no big secret. But of course things are bad in the world. This is a fallen world, and the Scripture teaches it's going to get worse and worse until that day that Jesus breaks through the cloud and comes back to redeem this fallen world. So nobody needs to hear us rattle on and on about how bad the world is. And also, nobody needs for us to go on a rant talking about how badly people who don't know Jesus are misbehaving and the terrible things they're doing. Well, of course they are. They don't know Jesus. They're dead in their sin. How else would they behave? And so for us to, to moan and gripe and criticize that lost people act like lost people helps nobody. Now, hear me here. What they need to hear from our lips is that there is hope in Jesus. That there's hope in Jesus. And no matter how bad the world gets and no matter what they have done, if they will turn to Christ, they will have a new home in heaven that has none of these problems that we face every day. Because no matter how badly they behave, Jesus loves them. Jesus died for them. Jesus wants us to tell them about him, but they won't listen if we're a gloomy Gus or a Debbie Downer. We need to be people who speak words of optimism and hope. The gospel is good news. So let's act like it, and let's talk like it. 
Just one more. I think you probably can't stand more than one, but just one more question. It really is the bottom line. Are you willing to let Jesus have control over both your heart and your mouth? The two are really connected. They go together. My favorite prayer from Scripture, and it may be yours as well, is Psalm 19, 14, where the psalmist prays, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that that would be more than just a verse of scripture we read, but that that would truly be our prayer, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing unto you, that we would not speak words that would bring shame upon you, that we would not speak words that would push people further away from you, but that we would be the people of good news, the people who believe in the power of God, the people who have been redeemed and want to take the message of God's redemption through Jesus to the whole world. Lord, we can... We can take sides and join in whatever fight we choose, but help us to be on your side and to say what matters most, to be people who lift others up, not tear them down, to be people who bless others and not curse them, to be people who speak words of grace, mercy, and truth. Father, we give you this this next and final part of the service. I pray that if there's someone that has an issue in their life or a burden for someone that's on their heart and prayer is the step they need to take, I pray that they would come and pray with one of our prayer partners, couples, here at the front in just a moment. I pray, Lord, that if there are those here today who need to take the next step in their faith journey, whether it's the first step of accepting Jesus as Savior and Lord or a step back into faithfulness with you, whatever that is, I pray that they would come and say to one of these prayer partner couples, I need to take the next step, and we'll help them do that. Lord, if there are those who are sick today and they need your healing mercy, I pray they would have the freedom to come and allow me as an elder of the church to anoint them with oil and Cindy and I to pray over them that they might be healed. Whatever the need might be, Lord, may we not tune you out too quickly. May we give you these final moments of this service. And even if there are no issues or concerns, may we pray for those who have many today. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.